My name is Sister Prince and today is August 4th, 1989 and I'm interviewing Mr. Benny G. Rogers, uh, who is executive editor of the St. Louis American, a black newspaper founded in 1928. And Mr. Rogers has been associated with the paper for almost 45 years. 44 years. 44 years. August the 20th. I stand corrected. <laughs> August 20th will be 44 years. Uh, you remarked when I, you asked me when I came in if I had seen the, um, well, you tell me what issue that was. Uh, it was our 60th anniversary edition. And, and, and see, we had an awards banquet, and we celebrated at the uh, banquet at the hotel downtown. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I told you that I did have it, and I used yeah. it as a resource for mm -hmm. many of the people that I have interviewed. And, that I had. That's where I did my homework for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the three of us who worked for a long time, uh, really the background on the three of us and what we have done was included in it. Would you like to talk about that a little bit, the three of you? Well, uh, I don't know. It's been a really a, a refreshing experience for me because what actually happened, I, I had uh, I knew Mr. Sweets when I was a teenager, and uh, I, since I was a good automobile driver, I had driven around the country at various times, and at one time we went to Muskogee, Oklahoma, where one of the Murphy bro uh, Murphy's sons was getting married, and, and, and uh, on our way back, uh, one of the Murphys said to me, he says, you seem to have quite a bit of knowledge of what's going on, he says, Sometimes if you think about something, maybe you can get a job here with the Afro-American, you know, in Baltimore or so on. I never paid that really any, any attention, and I never thought anything about journalism until during the war. I worked at Curtis Wright, and you see, for blacks to work out there, the President Roosevelt had to issue Executive Order Number 8802, forcing the people to hire blacks, even though blacks were being killed in Europe and everywhere else fighting. So I went in there and worked, and what they did, they had a segregated hut-type place for us to work. You know, we were separated from the whites altogether, you know, the, and uh, I went to Curtis Wright School, and I learned, of, well, I, when I went to college, I studied uh, commercial and industrial art, and by me knowing a little bit about blueprint, what they made me was a lead man. I couldn't be a foreman because I was black. We always had the white foreman, and then we couldn't join the union because we were black. So I wrote all about these things in the St. Louis American, and Mr. Sweets liked it, and naturally Mr. George Young, who was uh, really running the news side of the paper, he said, well, maybe there's a potential for you after the war, you know, and come in and, and work for the paper. So I came in, first week I, I could have gotten unemployment compensation, but since I had been proud of my parents who had never been on any kind of welfare or any relief of that, that sort, the first week I worked for the American, I got $7.50. And then for the next three or four weeks, he paid me $15. And I worked for a long time for $30. I elevated myself from the task of drinking in tabs and writing entertainment news to real serious news and the most... Uh, the best assignment that Judge Young put me was on the discrimination at uh, Washington University. That was my first big story that I worked on. I interviewed black people who had graduated from Washington U in 19 and 18 and 1919 and like that. And I talked to a, a, a blind uh, retired lawyer who was in Masonic home named Farmer, and he gave me information about uh, the blacks he had gone to school with out there and things like that. So we had... Excuse me. I want to just be sure we got this going. Clinton blacks to Washington University in 1919. They quit. Yeah. yeah. And then you see, we had a series of stories on this, and Johnny Watson made pictures of the school. Every week I was gathering information about this. And uh, all of the blacks who had gone to school had had really been great men in the society. You know, Gus Thornton was a principal at some, I mean, as a teacher at Sumner High School, and 
they were such great people, so no one could figure why they did it, but all of a sudden they got into the segregation mode and they just quit, limit, quit uh, admitting blacks. And they didn't put them on anymore. They didn't admit blacks anymore until about, I think it was about one year before the Supreme Court issued a decision on school desegregation. Mr. Rogers, you were, in, you were interviewing all the people that had graduated. Were you able to interview anybody from the uh, university itself? I talked to them. I think, it, I think the chancellor's name was Arthur C. Compton or something like that. Oh, yeah. Wasn't it Compton? Yeah, Arthur Compton. Yeah, but you couldn't get too much out of those people, you know. They were, they were always, it's just like every other thing where you, where you, where blacks have been eliminated, they kept saying that, uh, that, that the uh, qualifications were higher at that time or something like that. You know. I just wondered if they would see you. Oh yeah, they did, they did, they saw me. Tired, they got tired of seeing me. <laughs> <laughs> but now this was, uh, gosh, you almost, that was almost 40 years ago, you know. Mm -hmm. that that was was, so that's the first serious? That was, that was the first uh, serious assignment that I really had. Mm -hmm. You know, writing stuff like entertainment, what's going on in taverns and names and stuff like that, what people are doing, you really don't have to be a great writer to that. You just, mm -hmm. because actually the people who read it, they aren't looking for errors or, you know, anything of that sort. But that was my start. And then uh, the other most serious stuff I did was in 1949, I found out about drugs being in the North Side area. You know, uh, 1949, well, very few people, even, well, people had been smoking marijuana and stuff like that. And then Larry Steele and I, we, someone called and said that there was a, 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 a marijuana plantation over on Clark, 2700 block. So I called uh, Officer Herman, uh, Herman Saunders. And we went over there and the marijuana plants were all about 10 feet high, you know, and stuff like that. And we were on the picture with it and stuff like that. And then, then, then we knew then that it, there must have been numerous people using it. And then I found out really that uh, the drugs were being, the drugs at that time were really in the black high schools. See, they, they, and you see you only had Bashan High School, you had Sumner High School. But when I started writing that, I said, well, I'd like to get this to the white newspapers. And at that time, the St. Louis Times was separate as by itself. It hadn't joined the Star Times. You talking about the Star Times? Yeah, well, it was, it was the Times. It wasn't Star Times oh, until somewhere in the 50s. Okay. And then I, they, I gave them some information. They did one story, and they actually found out it was true that most of the drugs were in in the black school, so by not affecting the whites, so they just dropped it all together. Oh. So they didn't bother it at all. But I continue to write about it. But they, they were, would have printed your story if it had, if, if it had, they had been white. If, if, they, if the victims of the yeah. drugs had been white. But, but I always say now that in St. Louis, if, if they had heeded to my advice and my stories, uh, they wouldn't have been strung out as much on drugs as they are now because you, they didn't realize at the time that these blacks who were using the drugs were going to get in contact with the whites out in University City and Clayton or doing like that. They found it just about, well, by 1951, they were really coming into the city, you know, getting drugs. So just thousands of them got hooked. So it affected everybody eventually. And then I, I'm on uh, December the 28th, 1949, I had an opportunity to go into Two South. That's the p a section of Old Phillips Hospital where they had the drug addicts. What was the name of it? Uh, Two South was Two the name. Okay. You know, that was the name of the uh, section of the mm -hmm. hospital where they kept, well, they called mental patients, but most of them at the time were addicted to drugs. And you could just see them lying on the floor, you know, shaking from the drugs, and they'd give them a dose, and then they would be all right for a while. It really was a sad thing, but 
It gave me a lot of experience in it, you know. But you couldn't wake anybody up. You couldn't. You can't. No, you can't wake up a dog. They they gave them a uh, shock treatment and. No, also. I mean you couldn't wake the community up. No, I couldn't wake the community up, and I don't think that you can wake the community up now, you because you see what we're living now in is an apathetic society. The people who know about it, it's just like the things coming out now about the black youth being murdered and all this, and the inequities in blacks and whites. Well, the middle class black people don't want to hear about this, and the white people don't want to hear about it. Everybody wants to think that this is a sweet and rosy world, you see. And they, they don't want to read it in the newspapers even. But I got to the point where uh, I was running, well I worked real well with the police department until I found out that the policemen were the, the chief dealers in drugs. Then I slowed down on it, but what I was doing, I was running. White policemen or black policemen? Two white policemen ran the department for years without anybody interfering with them, and they were they were the chief dealers in drugs. See, I had, I had a federal judge, Judge George Moore, to ask me why I wouldn't go to higher-ups and complain about it. Well, why go to the higher-ups and complain about it when they're getting their cut just like the two policemen were? They were deeply involved. You're talking about around in, you know, ranked 1951, 52, 53, like that, you see. Did anybody threaten you so that you wouldn't write any more articles? Oh, sure. I shot at it. I got powder burning on my right here, right underneath here now from where I was shot at and Mr. Bullet over on Leonard and Easton, you know. But I tell you what, a, a scare like that is, is one of the things that really calmed me down. And what I found out too was that uh, the, the drug addicts at that time, uh, they, they were people just like the poor people today. You know, you put their picture in the paper, even if they're a, a murderer or something like that, that's the first time in their lives they've ever had any attention. And they, they would like for your picture to be in the paper. So my position on this thing is that I don't want to do anything on a criminal side to make somebody happy, so I quit running their pictures. At one time I had about 12 or 13 photos on the front page of those who had been arrested for you know, drug addiction, you know, for modern in possession. But that didn't help the community at all, I didn't think, so I just quit doing it like that. Seems to be a problem that it's hard to get rid of, hard to know what to do about it. Well... Was it in the schools in those days? Oh, yes, it was in the school. They used to find them. The stories that I was writing, well, some of the principals would be start checking out these students and like that, and they found them on just like they have they're in the schools now. It's, 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 well, economically, drugs in America is a, is a great source. And you see, uh, if it really weren't for this pe uh, peddling drugs right now, the sales of automobiles and homes and things would be much lower than what it is. So you see, the economy base has gone sky high in the United States because of drugs. And that's one reason why you're never going to find too much concentrated effort to stamp it out. You're talking about a billion dollar industry, you know. They, they're getting more off of drugs than they're on the sale of automobiles, you know. It's really robbed the black community. Yeah, and then, you know, the, these two policemen that I was talking about, they fronted me off one time because really I was the main one who was interested in it, seemed, you know, in the 50s. And Iran, Iran, we knew that Iran was sending drugs here. So they had uh, officials from Iran to come down to the St. Louis Police Department, and they had a, the police department had a dog named Duke Juan. So what they did, they were had an exhibition. They were showing these Iranians how uh, Duke Juan could find drugs. So they used me, see, putting drugs in my pocket and like that, and have the dog sneaking in the room and then jump right up on me, you know. And I had a picture that, a picture of me in the paper with them, you know. But you know how I felt later on when I found out that I'm dealing with a bunch of peddlers here who were wearing police badges. <laughs> Disillusioning. Yeah. Um, you, when you wrote these columns, these articles, did you, uh, did, was it under your name? 
or was did you have a column? I don't I don't recall. You see, it's very dangerous to write any crime story on your name, mm -hmm. and I, I I wouldn't write it under my name right now. I don't use my name when I write the column. I use the name Farley Wilson. You know. Where did you get that name? Just bought it up sometime about thirty years ago. Mm -hmm. And I write a column under that name right now. F-A-R-L-E-Y? Harley mm -hmm. Wilson. I just won two awards, one national and one locally for the column. N N NPA award for the second best column in the country and the, the Black Jones Association award for the best column in St. Louis. Well, congratulations. Yeah, I just got that last month. Well, just now that you, you just got an award, you're the first inductee of the St. Louis Association of Black Journalists Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. right. And in 1978, uh, the first journalist scholarship was named after me, Benny oh. G. Rogers Scholarship. Well, you are the Dean of the Black, of St. Louis Black Journalism. Is that what you say? That's what I say. Somebody told me that. <laughs> I read that well, somewhere. You, you, see, can, you can believe everything you read. <laughs> well, I don't know. You see, uh, well, it, excuse people, me, but Mr. Rogers, it seems as though what I have read points to you as someone who has taught a lot of young people and who has done a fine job himself and who gives a lot of credit to other people. Well, here's the thing about that. You see, I'm dedicated to the cause. I do what I can to help other people and help the community. When you say the cause, well, well, you you know what the cause is. The cause started the marches and like that. Civil rights. As a matter of fact, it should start some marches right now because the civil rights issue, because of the Reagan doctrine, has really fallen almost down into the soil. So things aren't really good. But if what I'm saying, I, I've had several whites, you know, working with me. And, and my contention about this is, even though way back there when we first talked, we were a small black paper, but I always thought this, that if, if we teach white reporters, you know, what's going on in the black communities, then they would try to uh, add some of the good things with some of the bad things and know actually what has gone on in the community. See, Martha Rabel worked here. Her father was pastor of Pilgrim's Congregational Church up here for years, and she worked with her about two or three years. And now she is uh, an editor of Brockton Enterprise in Boston, Massachusetts, the newspaper. She calls me all the time, and she, whenever she's in town, she always comes by, you know, and people like that. You, you see what what I've always told what I've always told black reporters is that you can't segregate yourself and fight segregation. You see that's why I had Martha Rabin and we had Steve Corris who was white to come in and work with me as a, a writer, a journalist, mm -hmm. so everybody can learn something. Mm -hmm. I'm and learning something from them. They learn something from me. They'll see the black community as a whole. Yeah, just but we have we have produced some of the best journalists in the United States, mm -hmm. and the reason is uh, almost everyone that I ran into who really wanted to work for the paper seemed to have had a, a great potential, and then you can take it from there and, and, and stretch that out, and then you're coming up with something great. What is the mission of the black press? I don't know, it's getting harder and harder. You, you know, I thought in 1954, and this is the truth, that after the, the United States Supreme Court on school desegregation, I said, well now, if they're going to end segregation in the schools, our jobs would just about be done because, you see, that would eliminate segregation everywhere. Then they were talking about public accommodations, you know, and in St. Louis they're talking about it way before they thought about it in Washington, D.C. So if you rub those out, the, the black newspapers would have nothing to be writing about but social things and like that, mm -hmm. and baseball, and who's going to read it, you know? 
and I thought sure it would be dead, but now all of a sudden we find ourselves in a critical situation. And the and the only thing that I know about the black press, what it should have, what it should do is escalate its interest in what is actually going on in equities between the blacks and the whites and get the ball to ruin and start writing some very serious stories about it. Well, do you think you'll do that? I'm going to try. You, you really don't have, I hate to say it, but uh, the, the journalism schools right now, they're teaching the basic skills, but uh, as far as investigative reporting, the, the average kid comes out and really doesn't have it. And it takes a long time to train them to where they're, they're really good at it. And they're afraid to approach the people. As a matter of fact, they're afraid to write their stories because they're afraid to offend the corporate structure. That's the biggest problem there. That's the biggest problem with the civil rights organization. You see, they, they hadn't uh, been very strong with the corporate structure in the 60s when they acting a fool, burning down their own homes and places where they work, but now the corporate structure has come, has come in and joined in these organizations and things like that, and people are a little, little more timid than they were. I want to read something to you that uh, when I went and looked up the history of black newspapers, uh, this was, I think, something called the Freedom Journal was the first black organized mm -hmm. newspaper in 1887. No, 1827. Oh, 18, I stand corrected again. All right. Mm -hmm. um, and this was a policy based, their policy based on seven themes. Um, now, now I understand why, okay, it was black assertion to uh, black self black image, uh, education for blacks, economic improvements, civil rights, African renaissance, image of each other, and abolition of slavery. And well, except for the last one. There's others are still available, uh -huh. still here. The fight is still on. And, and there's some people now like Simon Williams who called me from Washington, D.C who always jokes and says, please get me off the plantation. Or some of them think they're still in, in slavery. <laughs> um, the climate, that's a word that, that's used to describe the feelings and the attitudes of people. How does, how does the paper change with the climate? Well, I'll tell, you about, I'll tell you about the St. Louis American. The St. Louis American changed itself in the past three or four years. If you pick up our paper now, you'll see a family paper. What you see basically are achievements of blacks are making. You very seldom, we don't see anything about robbery and murders and things like that. Mm -hmm. Because the, the daily papers do enough of that anyway. See, there's, there's nothing left for you to write when the, and the paper comes out today with a a black man on the front page who's been arrested for murder, because you can't add to it. Mm -hmm. See, but, but but what we're doing now are writing about what people are doing who are progressive. You know, mm -hmm. you have to, you know, um, we dwell more on the constructive side now. You know, trying to be more positive. Do you do you dwell on on any of like today? I cut this out of the paper today. St. Louis called hyper-segregated. What if we don't, we should. That's a, that's a problem too, you see now. Personally, if I were the, uh, I'm not the publisher, see. You're not the what? I'm not the publisher, you see. The editors, most of these things are up to the publishers, but from what I, have, what I have experienced, the churches are way back in this desegregation process. You, 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 can, you can see that when you see so many vacant churches, just like you have Baptist, Catholic, 
Presbyterian, I don't care what they are, that used to be all white in the black neighborhoods. Then you ask the question, what happened to these Christians? You know, what happened to this brotherly love? You know, it's like you, we go to mass and uh, but the priest says, you know, you got this thing where now you turn and greet your neighbor, you shake your hand. That, that's, too, that's all artificial. But there's nobody there saying that these people aren't the, the killers that you read about. These are good people because the killers are in the minority. There are very few of those. These are good people. So why run? Why would you spend extra money to move out of your house and, and, and you already have one, see? But this is going on inside. Just like, just like yesterday morning, Vincent Shamo was on KMOX. Okay, a caller calls and he says, I've been living this out down here for 50 years. And he says, I'm frightened because all of a sudden, the for sale signs up all around my house. So it, instead of Vincent Shamo telling this man the truth, he was saying that the real estate business had fallen off and that the, uh, what the, these real estate companies are doing or going into this refinancing thing, you know, and all this sort of stuff. Instead of Vincent Shamer saying, well, the reason the signs are going up because some black family moved into a block down on Nottingham somewhere and all the white people are packing up, getting the moving van people more richer and moving out. See, you, you can see the plaintiffs and nose on your face when, when you get a, a black commanding officer in the second district down in the 2nd District, they've never had over three or four black policemen down there in history. So they have a black commander. So that means now that black people are moving in the South Saint Louis. Mr. Rogers, what, what was the best time since you've been on this paper for, for blacks in St. Louis? What was the best time? The best times? Gosh, I hate to say the best time. Because the best times were when we really had segregation and everybody knew each other. There was less crime, just like in the Mill Creek area, mm -hmm. on Market Street and Jefferson and all that. You had over a hundred businesses owned by black people. And they had all kinds of, all kinds of places. You know, hardware stores, grocery stores. It was a real community. It, it's, it was just yeah, you know, just like home, like you know, everybody knew each other. If if uh, in 19 and, uh, I'd say around 19 and 48 or 49, if you had a murder, that was a rare thing. You know, a little kid was murdered down there on Jefferson and, and Chestnut. Oh, I mean, people went crazy in St. Louis, you know. Her body was thrown in the ash pit. She had been raped, 10-year-old child. But it's, it's an everyday occurrence now. Everyday occurrence now. The people are too far apart. People are too far apart. They aren't, they aren't together anymore. You think that's true of every community, though? I think it's Not true. Not just the black. I, I think, well, the black community have been left isolated. You have, you, you have too many poor people stacked up with poor people. This is what happened to Pruitt, Iago, and that was the biggest mistake over there, mm -hmm. just like anything else. You can't, you can't stack uh, impoverished people nine stories high in one building because everybody's in need, you know. Mm -hmm. has to be a community where there's a mix, where, where, you know, where some are poor and some have a little bit more and then some maybe be a little middle class or something like that. Uh, talk about, since you mentioned um, Pruitt Igo when they desegregated the public housing, well, Pruitt Igo still never wasn't very much segregated. Really no, Cochrane Garden was the only one that I know of that was really desegregated. And then they had they built the other one up on Grand Avenue for the senior citizens. Mm -hmm. It was desegregated. I know that because I had to pull some string to get a, a, a white woman in it, you know, <laughs> to get her in it. <laughs> All right, well, we moved to, um, we'll, we're up to about 1954, I guess. Yeah, but you asked ask me about the best time for yeah. black people. Mm -hmm. uh, business, on, 
let me explain to you about what I'm referring to as the best times. You see, back in this era, era you had black people working the independent packing company. You had you had the Cleed Steel, had Scotland Steel. You had the Cleed Crispy, Christie, and you had uh, Grand. You had a uh, Hunter Packing Company, Cry Packing Company. You had black people working in all these places. Had the International Shoe Company, Johnson Shoe Company. All of those places are gone now. And 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 then you see, by black people not being financially able to get a college education back in those days, just like millions or more today, then they were deprived, deprived of a, a white collar job, and these were the only jobs they could have. So those were really good days for black people back there. Yeah, they were, they were working in the railroads, they were working yeah, in the and, 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 and Missouri Pacific Roundhouse had black people working there. They were cleaning the, the trains. At Union Station they were working. And at 23rd and, I mean, at Jefferson and Scott, they had a place there where the black people were working. You're talking about jobs really gone. They're really gone. And in this day and age, you're talking about high tech. You're talking about high tech now. You're going to have to be uh, really educated. And then when you get that education, five years from now, you're going to need some more. Because the computer age is really different from the others. It changes overnight, just like the printing press that they make today. The printing press that you bought in 1984 is obsolete today. And even though it costs you a half a million dollars, you're going to need a new one. But it, it's a terrible trade-off because in those days there was segregation and people couldn't go where they wanted to. Now they can... Yeah, that's true. They, that's, that, that's true too. But this just like a, in, back in those days where the St. Louis Argus owned its own printing press. They don't own a printing press now. The Evening World owned their printing press. Everybody has the white businesses printing their paper. <laughs> and yours too? Sure. Everybody, you can't afford them. Fuck it. Yeah, you can price them. Okay. And as, as far as business is concerned. You see, you're talking to one of the individuals who, who is and was an advocate of integration. But you see, I can remember years when I was president of Lamb's Club in 19, and, oh, in the 50s and like that, 60s. Uh, Duke Elgin would come to town, he'd come to the Lamb's Club because there's no other place where he could go. He would sit and he'd sip his drink. We had the Mills Brothers out there. And oh, I can name a whole lot of people there. Uh, Jackie Robinson and Willie Mays and all of them, they come there. Or else they go over to, to the Adams Hotel that was owned by C.Y. Abernathy. That's where they were staying in places like that. But before that, when it went before Mill Creek, they were staying at the Book of Washington Hotel, uh, uh, Book of Washington Hotel down on Jefferson and Pine. They were still confined and segregated, and they couldn't go in these places. But now, you see, in 1969, when we had a party for Duke Allen on his birthday, where he played at Washington University, he had left the community completely. He was at the Chase Hotel. When I left him at 1.30 in the morning, he was sipping scotch and water there with the white people in that place. So this is the way it goes all the time. But you see, I, I guess that's just the trend. But I know Duke Ellington was just like I was about integration. Because I remember the time when W.I.L. invited him to W.I.L. Oh, radio. Invited him to be a guest on this station. Well, this was before they had portable, you know, phones and all this stuff and equipment. So that he had to go to Grand and Little for the interview. When he got there, some elevator operator who's making twenty dollars a week told him he had to use the freight elevator, say. Which made him very indignant. And a proud man like he was, he just turned around and walked on I got in his cab and went on back to the Book of Washington Hotel. Wonderful St. Louis. Yeah. Talk about and a little bit more about uh, and maybe not the more common ordinary folk in segregation and integration. 
On there, folks? Yeah, not a Duke Ellington. <laughs> Just a... Well, all of, no matter who you are, you're affected the same way, you know. It's just like a... Well, he could go back and and, and maybe... Well, just, just, just center on on the people that, that, that lived here. You mean by names? No, no, just what was life like? By segregation? Mm -hmm. Oh, I got frosted feet by segregation. When I was a boy, I, was, I lived on Hickory Street, 2906 Hickory Street. And, uh, you know, the Globe Democrat always had a party at the Coliseum on Christmas. They gave us nice gifts, fruit and all that. So one time they gave us a, a ticket to the St. Louis Theater. And this ticket was for some show in January. And I walked from my house to the Grand and Lucas. And I was frozen when I got there. And at the man at the door, told me, he said, I'm sorry, son, we don't allow, we don't admit color, and gave me a pencil box with pencils, erasers, stuff like that. So I couldn't get warm no place, because there's no place on Grand where I could stop in and get warm, because I'm black. So I had to walk all the way back there, and I had, my feet were frosted when I got back there. Benny, are you an angry man? Were you? No, I didn't bother me too much, because it was a way of life, you know, because I lived See, I lived at 2906 Hickory Street, which was across the street from Buddha Playground, you know. And by me being black, I couldn't play in the Buddha Playground. We didn't have a playground. See, the blacks didn't have a playground. I lived one block from Shoto School, and I had to walk to a Louvre School on Papan and Jefferson, which was one block from where Henry Armstrong lived, you know. But, but that's the way things were. Henry Armstrong. Henry Armstrong, was, he died, he was the first triple triple champion box, triple crown boxing champion. He just died earlier this year. You know Henry Armstrong? Mm -hmm. uh, he, he was Henry Jackson when we grew up, but he was the first person in history, white or black, who won, who, who held three boxing titles at one time. He was Henry Jackson and became Henry Armstrong? Yep, his name was Jackson. Oh. Then when he left St. Louis, he changed his name to Henry Armstrong. That's the way he died, yeah. I think it was for Jack Armstrong, the old American boy. Well, he wasn't around then. <laughs> wasn't no Jack Armstrong then in those days. You're talking about in the 20s now. <laughs> Early 30s, yeah. But segregation was... Well, one thing about St. Louis is that we didn't, we didn't have to ride in the back of the bus. That's the only difference, you know. That's the only difference. But, you, but you'd, you'd have to be, you'd have to actually be a victim of it to realize, just like... What does it do? I don't know. It, it, after, after the thing is about over, probably when you get bitter, because you say to yourself that you could have had greater opportunities. It's just like when, when I graduated from high school, well, the only school, college I could have gone to was in Lincoln University. You know, the closest college to where I could go was 100 miles. But did a white you, did person, you go to Vashon? No, I, went, I graduated from Vashon, yeah, 1934. But you see, the whites could have gone to St. Louis University, or Washington University, but I couldn't go because I'm black, understand? I went to school in Bloomington, Illinois. See, that's, that's the difference. So when you, you start thinking about all these things, just thinking about how ignorant, or how ignorant it was, you know. But you still have problems, you know, you, you still have problems as long as white people keep running away from the blacks when they move in the neighborhoods. It's, you, you, you're still going to have racist problems because you have racist problems with police de departments, you know. Just like a, I know a place in North County where a black man has a tavern and the white policemen sit out there and, and watch people get in their cars and come out and they know they've had a couple of drinks and they Lock them up for DWI. <laughs> when, when things became desegregated, public accommodations and people could go, how did your, how did people um, handle that? Well, uh, let me say it like this. I was in the last meeting that they had with Edwin Arthur, owner of the Fox Theater, about desegregating the theaters. Uh, that Henry Winfield Wheeler was there, 
and Fred Weathers and Billy Ames from Corps and uh, Henry Wheeler's daughter. And then what 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 they told what they told Edwin Arthur was that uh, the price of admission to the Fox Theater and other theaters out there, the seven that he named, the price would keep the riffraff out. You see, those who are going to come in and create a disturbance, the price would keep them out because they used to pay 20 and 25 cents to get in the theater. And at that time, I think it was a dollar and a half, a dollar seventy-five getting the pox. So they said, well, they won't be coming here anyway. And, and, and we knew that from years Mr. That, Arthur said that. No, he didn't say it. Uh, well, uh, Mr. Wheeler said Mr. that. Mr. Wheeler said that. Well, we all agreed to that. You know, just it's it's an economic thing with everything. You know. Okay. You know, so just like now, you know, you won't find you won't find a guy who's making thirty or forty dollars a week going down to the Marriott bar drinking down there because the drinks don't be about three or four dollars a piece. You see, so it's just it's an economic thing. And then the biggest problem they had. But open up the theaters, and as much as Edmund Arthur controlled them, was that the preacher at the Third Baptist Church on Grand at Washington was the main one trying to keep the blacks off of Grand Avenue. This, this another man preaching about Christ, you know, and, and trying to and indoctrinating everybody on religion, who's who was fostering segregation, and he had a radio show, you know, but then uh, every, everybody was told that. Well, we'll just have to go behind him this time, and so Edwin Arthur opened the theaters up. That, that picture thought he was Reverend Coughlin, Father Coughlin. <laughs> uh, well, there are a lot of those now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there are a lot of those, you see, because yeah, after all, now, during the 60s, you see, Jim Clark, who used the cattle prods to torture black women and children in the... Uh, demonstrations in Alabama, you know, he was invited to a Baptist church on on Gibson Avenue to, as a principal speaker. And, 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 and they didn't want any black people in there, so a, 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 black, a black and a white person from court went in there and they arrested them for being in there. They charged them with creating, uh, creating a disturbance. Yeah. Uh, how did your, what did your paper, your paper must have been very busy at that time. How did they handle the... Well, the paper... Let me explain to you about paper. The paper wasn't as busy then as it is now because, you know, it's just a, it's just status quo. You know, everybody... I mean, it's just like the way I was born. You know, it's born in segregation. It's just like a person who's born blind. You're just born used to these things and never bother too much even though you're fighting it. But if not, if they fight... They should have nine, should be stronger now than it was back then because so far we've been given, given these rights by the court and all of a sudden they're being taken away so it's damaging now because you're slipping back. So you don't want to slip back. Are people fighting now? Oh yeah, the NAACP going to march next month, this month, March on Washington. They are? Oh yeah, they're going to march on the 28th of August. I'm sure it's the 28th. Of 26, something like that. Yeah, 26 of August. Do we have a strong NAACP here? No. See how quick I answered you? Mm -hmm. Very weak. Very weak. Why is it so? Well, I think every organization should change officers regularly. Like CORE used to. Yeah. See, that's what killed Core. They have a chairman now who's been in there for some 20 years or something like that. And, and it's dead. It's doing nothing. In the NAACP here, you very, very seldom hear about them. You know, just like the time when the, uh, when the black woman was arrested on the bus on Park or somewhere down there for eating the two nuts, something like that. That's the time to act, isn't that right? So now, uh, when these things are happening, your paper does it go to the NACP and ask Ida Boone to comment or? Well, she's, I think she's, she's doing more than the rest of them. You see, she's not a, she's not really running the local. She's a regional director. Mm -hmm. Now, she's doing more 
than the rest of the people, you know. But do you do you seek them out for their comments and? Oh yeah, oh yeah, we have we have that in there for her. She she she's doing her job, but you have some others in there who aren't. Um, let's talk. All right, we're talking about uh, um, well, politically. Um, how how does how do you see the impact of this paper politically? Do you feel that you can make a difference? Well. Politically, what what our paper and every black newspaper is going to have to do, especially at times like this, is to get more black people registered to vote. You see, it's just like uh, St. Louis American is democratic, but the St. Louis American, you you can't just consider the qualification for a candidate for a position because of his color. Because you take the fellow like William Lucas, who, who, who a Bush appointed to a position, he could, he could be worse than any white person on there. You know, just like I have here in the story I wrote about six years ago where a conservative black person was saying that $3.35 an hour was too high, it should be $2.35 an hour, because it would make the economy stronger, more people would be hired, you know. People who think like that. That's the way the average black conservative Republican think. So naturally, I, I haven't found any black Democrats who would be such an idiot. Well, are there, are there, is black, are blacks in politics here very strong? They're strong, but they're only as strong as they, they should be. You don't, you, you really don't have to be strong, you're talking about a leader who could control the others. You know, like the Board of Aldermen, mm -hmm. they have 11 blacks in there. You should have one strong enough to say, well, we're together and I'm a spokesman for it. We don't have that, but we should have that. Like in the black legislature, you, well, they had a black, uh, black legislative caucus, you know. Mm -hmm. But even though they, if, if they should select a leader, I, they probably have one, but it's not so strong that I remember what his name is. Yeah. So See, if I asked you who the black leaders were today yeah, well, in St. Louis, anyway. Most people consider Bill Clay, the congressman, the black leader. But by him being a national officer, he doesn't have too much impact in the city of St. Louis daily. Mm. See, mm -hmm. you need a strong political faction working daily in St. Louis, fighting for these things. If, if it were true, Benson Shaman wouldn't be mayor today. That's what you have to have. You see, just like all over the United States, now people are going, these people are going to Washington, D.C. on August the 26th. If they had been together and strong in the election process eight years ago or nine years ago, then the Supreme Court wouldn't be stacked with the conservatives that it have now. And you wouldn't have to be going there. See? Well, there's an opportunity for somebody here then. Opportunity for what? To be involved in politics and become stronger. But you're waking up a dead horse because the Supreme Court is there now, and you have two more men there who are old, and they'll be gone in a year or two. Then you're going to have two more conservatives, because the, the, the Democrats, the Democrats in, in Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia, and South Carolina are still going to put a Republican president in there, you know, because they run around here with the flag and the, and the prayer in school, and this abortion issue, abortion issue, I mean, care whether you're for it or against it, the abortion issue is going to put unqualified people into political positions in the United States, which is the wrong thing to do. we got so damn many problems. I don't see how you can make one issue the main one. You know, you've, you've been around a long time with a lot of experience, and you're really painting a very dark but very realistic picture. You think so? Mm -hmm. 
what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah, I've been around a long time, all right. <laughs> I never did stay indoors every day, all day. No, I've been around. Talking to a lot well, of people. Well, I mean, you know, you're speaking from experience. Yeah, well, you'll learn out here. Actually, you, you can learn more you can learn more in newspaper work in six months than you can learn in a college in say eight years. Mm -hmm. Because you, you're you're talking to people, you're you're hearing, yeah, them, you're, you're listening. You're but you're talking about uh, you know the political situation and and the job situation, and uh, it's not um, well, it's not very the job. Oh. Well. You know, the, the job situation now, the, the, the most serious thing about it is the, uh, it, 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 the problem is going to be worse later on. You know, I'm not just talking about the blacks or the whites, everybody's going to have to re-educate themselves. I asked Deverne Callaway if she had to give a message to the young today, what would it be? And it reminds me of what you just said. She said that uh, she would tell the young people not to only watch the television set, but to figure out how does it work and learn. Because the That's computer right. age is here, just as you, you said. Can learn, you can learn quite a bit on it. And I just noticed a new show last night on ABC with Sam Donaldson. That's a good show. You, you hear what the people are saying. You, you can hear, you have an opportunity. You hear what the politicians are saying, you, you, they show these films back here about what is going on. That's a way to learn. See, and, and a lot of people, well, they don't have priorities that I have. Because, see, I was, when, when my children were born, I, I was still poor as hell, you see. But the first thing I did when my first child was born, I bought a, an entire uh, series of book of knowledge. I got uh, child care, care books. Mm -hmm. I built myself a whole bookcase running all around the wall, all kinds of books in it. And when my boys were born, I never would give them any guns to play with. I would buy them, buy them science things. And, and it was lucky that they went to a school where I have twin boys, you know. They're 31 now. Went to school where that was a priest who taught chemistry, mm -hmm. and, and he would come to the house and bring them, uh, and he'd take them to St. Blaise School and give them different, you know, different little objects and things. Now, next to- I know St. Blaise School. You do? Yes, That's I where am. I am. I'm right one block from there. Been out there 24 years. I do you know John Winslow? Sure. Got all those cars parked in front of his house? He sells cars. Yeah. Yeah, Joan, she was, see, I was treasurer at the school association when she was secretary a long time ago. Tall, slender woman. Yeah. Sure, I know her and her husband, children, all of them. And Chris? Sure, Chris, yeah, I know Chris. See, okay. I see him every day almost. Past, I saw him this morning. Um, your, uh, your boys are, uh, well, one is what, a uh, Ph.D., has a Ph.D. in physics, mm -hmm. and, yeah. and one is in chemical engineering. He gets that Ph.D. next week. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Oh, we got to get back on the track. All right. <laughs> I didn't know we had friends in common. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, all right. Um, where should we go from here? Tell me, um, we talked about leaders are presumed leaders in the black community. Who were they in the 40s? Or in who the, had oh they been? Gosh, in the 40s you had Dave Grant, you had Win Henry Winfield Wheeler, you had Fred Weathers, and, and the 40s actually had politically, was only one man, Jordan W. Chambers. Jordan W. Chambers. He controlled it. He controlled it. He was he wasn't a, a really a highly polished individual. He was a self-built man. I don't know whether he's educated or not. It really didn't matter because he made himself powerful, you know. 
made us out powerful. And I, I can recall in 1936, you see, uh, President Roosevelt came to town. I was the only black in the parade. See, I, I had been working with Jesse Johnson, the dance promoter, and he had this brand new uh, packet patent. And I drove the press car. See, in 1936, the press was only one automobile. See, the, the, the first car was Secret Service, then President Roosevelt, he came across this long ramp on 18th Street down to Clark, and they had him in this, he had his wheelchair, and he came down. He got in the second car, and then the next car was Secret Service, and the other car was the one I was driving with the press car. Six, only six people in the press car. Well, you got to remind yourself that you didn't have, you didn't have television or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Then you had a NBC and maybe ABC. No, they didn't have ABC. They had CBS. Then you had just six reporters coming here. But now, when the last press car that I was in was when. Uh, President Ford was here. When President Ford was here, we had they had three buses of national press corps and about seven of us on local press corps from the airport around through the city the place where it's gone. Same thing happened with Lyndon Johnson here. So it was strange. I was just I was telling some kids the other day, I said, a lot of people don't know it, but I was with the press in 1936, you know, stretching out. Then I had to explain it to them that I was the chauffeur for the press <laughs> in 1936, but I was with the press corps with uh, President Johnson twice when he came here for the, the arts, when they had arts celebration, and I was with uh, President Nixon, and then with Ford, you know. But I've been there with the press corps, and it's, and it's hell to get credentials for that. Um, we talked about the impact of the uh, white churches and what they've done. They fled. They fled. What about the black churches? They haven't done anything either. But, but I, I think that could be actually because the, the, the black people, they, they seemed, they seemed uh, happier when they're together, when the spirit hit them and they're able to shout and they don't want to nudge anybody else or something like that. They feel like they're at home together in their churches. The churches are really more home-like than anything else. It's always been like that. But it's just this, this spirit that they have. I don't know that you take a Pilgrim Congregation Church was the first in St. Louis to really desegregate. Matter of fact, I don't, I've never heard of segregation in that church. I just read the other day where the first pastor of the church died, but uh, it's been truly integrated. But uh, it's integrated with some very, very educated people, influential people, and like that. Of course, the the white people that feel Pilgrim Congregation Church is the same way, but the the, the Catholic Church. I don't I don't understand the Catholic Church. Actually, you know, all my kids are Catholic, my wife's Catholic, but we were living on Margareta, and you, you, you wouldn't ask me about segregation and things like this. When, when my daughter was, was about a year old, we moved on Margareta. I'm living next door to a white man who's selling newspapers at Vanavana and Natural Grid. As soon as we moved out, he quit sitting on his front step and started sitting on his back. Then you, then you had the white people on the corner. Two of them worked at the banana. They were selling bananas down on uh, Produce Row. Mm -hmm. All right, then, then you had, I can name five doctors that, that well, the white people just started moving up. But you had, you had uh, uh, Dr. Homer Nash, Dr. Helen Nash. Then you had uh, Dr. Merrill Hereford and his wife. Then you had uh, uh, Judge Virgil Lucas moving in, and you had Miriam Brown, who was uh, who was the librarian that sold in, and her husband, who was a retired real estate a retired railroad man who was in real estate, and had Edo Diamond. Just all these people in here. So you, these black people in here, the white people start moving out, and these white people, they weren't even middle class; yeah. they were poor white people. So you, you, you can't, 
continue to say that it's an economic thing, the reason that the areas are segregated, you know. Now, the first black child to go to Most Holy Rosary Church was Carla Hereford. See? Is that H-E-R-E-F-O-R-D? H-E-R-R-I-F-O-R-D. Carla Hereford. Okay, she was the first black in there. My daughter was the second. Carla Hereford is now as a, a MD in California, see? And my daughter is a buyer in Chicago. And she's been offered a job. Now she's going to uh, New York on the 17th. See, she worked for Gambles as a buyer, and then she worked for Stevens in Chicago. And Stevens, they, they foreclosed and they run out of business. So right now she's really not working except that she does odd jobs at $50 an hour to consulting on marketing. But she will get a good job. But you see, all of those, went, all of them went to college and everything and that. The white kids, my kids see them there, and, and they're selling shoes and stuff like that, you know. So sometimes you can say, well, these white people don't want to be in there, but he's poverty-stricken black. But that was really strange. You had Alfred Ford over there. He was a broker, and he was an insurance agent. He was vice president of the biggest insurance company in town, and Howard Woods was the publisher. He was the editor of the Argus at that time. And then William Brown was the first black police lieutenant colonel. <laughs> no, he wasn't the first black. He, but he was a lieutenant police, uh, lieutenant colonel police department. And then you had a, a white police patrolman. I seen he's retired now, but uh, he he was one of the first one to move out. So what are you going to say about those things? How can you how can you explain it? And another thing about. Most Holy Rosary Church, they have a white priest there right now. Okay, now this Father Xavier Albert that I was telling you about, he was at DeAndre's High School. They closed it. Okay, now instead of sending this black priest over to Most Holy Rosary, where did you think they sent him? And he was there for years. But just ask John at St. Blaise. Father Xavier Albert was associate priest at St. Blaise for years. Now he's at the St. Gabriel's down in South St. Louis. Okay, then you had Father Go Paul Gopal, very good friend of mine, born in St. Louis. He'd never been the pastor of a church in St. Louis, but you got those white priests all over the, where the, in the black neighborhoods. Can you explain that? You don't want to explain it, do you? I can't explain it. <laughs> it kind of irritates me when I think about well, it. Well, that's what I was asking. What about the anger? Well, no, I can't. I can't have an anger there because this you is can't? the system. No, I, there's no anger to it. No anger to it. But another thing about Saint Blaise, uh, it's really strange. Saint Blaise has had a black teacher there. I think about 20, 21 years. Named Mr. Lee. That's all I know. His name is Lee. He's been there about 21 years. That's right. That's a long time, and you got to say that. St. Blaise is damn near all white school. If you find two blacks in it, you you look you you find, you really look around. See? It's it's odd, isn't it? Well, it's 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 too bad. It's, well, it's worse than too bad. I don't have the words. To you can't explain it. Well, I can explain it. Mm -hmm. I I can't. And I was treasure for two different terms. Treasure the School Home Association. You explain it. Can you explain it? No. I don't, really, I don't want to ever get too deep into religion because I find myself like the Muslims, Iranians, and like that, people who want to kill. So I don't want to get involved in that. The religious fanatics, they're the worst in the world. Um, let's see. How would you compare your paper? with the other black newspapers as far as, for instance, the Chicago Defender? Well, I don't know. You see, what, what the St. Louis American has done, it has kind of revolutionized in the past six or seven years, you know, in, instead of getting away from from the, the criminal criminal element is is a family paper, and uh, 
I think we have really more substance than the rest of those papers. Because I, I, I read a lot of black newspapers and I really get disappointed because of the quality of the writing and things like that.